This evening, I'd like to talk about the Ten Perfections. Are all of you familiar with the Ten Perfections, Ten Paramis? Good. (laughs) Then it won't be a repeat, hopefully. Um, The Ten Perfections, or Paramis, as they're called, or Paramitas are those qualities that we want to perfect as we do our practice. And they are the qualities of a bodhisattva, those wonderful qualities that, um, that bodhisattvas emanate. And like all lists or qualities in Buddhist practice, they are qualities that we both cultivate and they naturally arise with our practice. So we can set the intention to cultivate or perfect or develop or encourage these qualities and with our regular practice they will begin to emerge on their own automatically. Parami means supreme and paramita means to go to the beyond or transcend or cross over. So they are the qualities that take us to enlightenment. They're listed in sequence and it's said that the, the sequence is important that each quality supports and is supported by the quality before and directly after. So I'll read what it says about the sequence. The first one is generosity. Giving is stated first, for giving assists the development of virtue, which is second and is easy to practice. I didn't know that. Did you know generosity is easy to practice? Giving accompanied by virtue is abundantly fruitful and beneficial. So virtue is stated immediately after giving. Virtue accompanied by renunciation. Renunciation accompanied by wisdom. Wisdom by energy, energy by patience, patience by truthfulness, truthfulness by determination, determination by loving kindness, and loving kindness accompanied by equanimity is abundantly fruitful and beneficial. Equanimity is accompanied by compassion and compassion by equanimity. So another way of saying it is that each one purifies the quality before it. These are noble qualities. As I say, they're the qualities that we want to develop on our way to enlightenment or Buddhahood. So the first one is generosity. 
And what does that mean? Generosity means giving, as was stated, dana in Pali. And it's a foundational practice. Uh, Many of you may know that in Southeast Asia, before meditation is taught, generosity or dana is taught. The first two, actually, generosity and virtue, which is morality or sila or ethics. So it's pretty, pretty foundational to our practice. And one of the things I think is most important to remember is that it's not just about money or material goods. So often I think generosity gets spoken about or thought about in terms of money. And as we practice dana or generosity here at the center, it's easy to get that impression that that generosity means money. But I'd like for us tonight to really expand that. It means so much more than money. Uh, Money may be actually one small part of generosity. One of the most important ways of being generous, I think, is with our attention, with our presence, with our time, with our caring, with our love. actually with our freedom. When we bring our freedom to a situation, that's a very, very generous, very noble act. So we might bring patience. We might bring material things. We might bring food as we do to the second harvest um, barrel. We might bring any kind of assistance. All of that is generosity. But the most important thing is that we do it with a generous spirit, that our spirit is generous. I think it was Andy Olensky that that said, it's more important how we do something than what we do. And that seems fitting for generosity. It's more important that we bring a generous heart, a generous spirit, than actually what we do. Because we might do something that's actually very giving and maybe very appreciated, but if it's done with a closed heart, if it's done with resentment or contraction, then it's not really generous. You know, intention in Buddhist practice is so important. So too with generosity. It's really about opening our hearts. So the spirit that we bring is what's most important in the practice of generosity. And we do it with non-attachment. We practice generosity without concern for the reward or the result or what it might get us. Indeed, it does often bring great rewards, um, especially in terms of, of just how we feel about it. There's a wonderful feeling that comes from being generous. I'm sure you all know that. But with a generous spirit or heart, it's not about what we're going to get back. It's merely about giving, just opening ourselves, being present for whatever 
is needed. And that's a wonderful practice. It's one of my favorite practices. It's, it brings such joy, such happiness for me, and hopefully to the other person, but it certainly does to me. <coughs> so then it says that generosity is supported by virtue. <coughs> virtue being morality, sila, ethics. It's said that it's very difficult to meditate if we aren't living an ethical life. If we're not leading a moral or ethical life, then we come to sit down and meditate and all the stuff that we do that's not moral, that's not um, uh, compatible with our meditation will arise and it will be very, very difficult to sit still, very, very difficult to keep one-pointed. So leading an ethical life is another foundational practice for meditation. And what do we mean by an ethical or moral life? Well, a few things. The principle of non-harming is central to Buddhist practice. And that's the very beginning, I think, of an ethical life. Non-harming comes out of compassion. We have compassion for each other, for the plants, the animals, uh, our planet, the earth. And this leads to non-harming. We naturally want to preserve, protect, and not harm a single thing. It also means following the five precepts. Um, In Theravadan practice, we have five general precepts that you probably all are familiar with. And it's said that following these precepts also brings great joy, great calm and tranquility. And one thing I read that I thought was so appropriate for this time in our world and in our country, that leading an ethical life, following the precepts, is the supreme security. How different from what we normally hear about security being military strength and might and dominance. And in this practice, leading a moral, ethical life brings the greatest security. If we don't harm, if we don't hurt others, that's the way to security for ourselves. And it's less likely anyone is going to harm us. So just to review the five precepts. The first, of course, is not taking life. They're generally stated in the negative, what not to do, but it's also very important that we restate them for ourselves in the positive. So the positive of not taking life is respecting life or honoring life. And as I said a moment ago, all of life not just human beings, but all life, plants, animals, um, the earth, all living, and I would suggest non-living or inanimate um, objects as well, honoring all of life. And the second is not stealing or not taking what is not freely offered. And the positive of that is generosity, the practice of generosity. 
uh, I neglected to say at the beginning that one of the important things in Buddhist practice about these precepts, uh, unlike some other traditions, is that they are considered guidelines. They are not set in stone. They are, you are not considered a sinner if you break a precept. And I think that's, that's very important in this practice. It gives sort of a whole new context, a whole new way of looking at the precepts. They're for our training. They're for our benefit. They're for our practice together. And we understand that we will break them. That's the human condition. You know, we will, we do, every day, end up killing. Not intentionally, perhaps, but we do. We step on creatures inadvertently. We swallow, we breathe in microbes. Um, So, it happens. But, in this practice, what we do when we realize we have broken a precept is recommit. We don't get into a lot of guilt. We don't get into shame or how terrible we are. That's not the idea. We simply recognize that we have broken a precept and we recommit. Not, you know, in a, in a way that, oh, well, it doesn't matter. That's not the idea. But also not in a blaming way. Just matter-of-factly, oh, I wasn't going to do that, and I did it. Let me remember from now on not to do that. So the third precept is no sexual misconduct. And the positive statement is honoring our sexuality, honoring, respecting our bodies and other people's bodies. The fourth is about speech, no lying or no false speech, um, no gossip, uh, no idle speech. And the positive stated is kind speech, truthful speech, helpful speech, uh, relative speech. And we do that by deep listening. So, right or wise speech involves deep listening. We listen deeply so that our speech will be truthful and kind and wise. And the fifth one is not abusing intoxicants. And the positive statement is to keep a clear mind. Generally, uh, this precept is talked about in terms of drugs and alcohol, but Thich Nhat Hanh has taken to really expanding it And he talks about anything that disturbs the mind. He also refers to it as wise consuming. So uh, what he means by that is paying attention to the magazines we read, the books we read, the television we watch, the movies we go to, this kind of thing, um, any of the activities that we do, so that we're not mindlessly taking in stuff that's that's going to um, cloud the mind. Um, uh, What's the word I want? Um, 
well, I can't think of it, but get the mind agitated, I guess agitated is what I want. But to keep a clear mind, to cultivate a clear mind at all times. So then the third quality, the third perfection or parami, is that of renunciation or letting go. Very often, renunciation has a bad reputation. People think of austerities. People think of, you know, you have to be a monk or a nun. And in the strictest sense, of course, that's what it is. But renunciation is actually, again, a very lovely practice. It's about letting go. It's about letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion. Letting go of sensual desires. Not making them bad or wrong, but not being trapped by them either. Not grasping or hanging on to them. It's about leading a simple life. And I have found over the years as um, simplicity has been more, I have been drawn more and more to simplicity, that it's a much more pleasant way to live life. Having fewer possessions means having fewer things to worry about. Sometimes I say to my mom, and she she laughs at me, you know, I tend to go in, leave my door open, or you know, I'm not, I lock it sometimes, but not all the time. She says, you know, you're so trusting, and I say, I don't have anything anybody wants, and she thinks that's funny, but it's true. I don't. Nobody really wants my couch or my whatever 20-year-old TV. Or <laughs> and many people think, well, that's no fun. You know, I want to have everything. I want to enjoy everything. Fine. But for me, it's more fun not to have all that stuff, and then I don't worry. So I don't have to have alarms, and I don't have to be fearful when I go out. You know, nobody's going to come in and take what I have because I don't have anything anybody wants. For me, it's much freer. It's much, much more fun. It reminds me of something that somebody sent me an email just this past week about um, poverty. And I can't remember it exactly, but it's something like, you know, yeah, you you have your your fancy things or your your gadgets or whatever and you're confined to a whatever 1300 or 5000 square foot house or whatever and and I have the entire world you may live on the beach you know um, beautiful house on the beach but you have this amount of beach and I have the entire expanse of beach. Um, there's more, you know, it goes on, but you get the idea that sometimes actually we're very limited by what we have. It might be ours, but it's limiting too. And then we have to have all these protections to take care of it. And if we don't have so much, the whole sky is ours. The whole world is ours. The whole forest is ours. That for me, that's the beauty of renunciation. Um, there was a song in the 60s, I can't remember who it was by, but 
um, something about nothing left to lose. Is that the Beatles? Is that it? Yeah. Lennon, yeah. Yeah. I think of that sometimes, you know, nothing left to lose. That's freedom. Then the fourth parmi is wisdom. And wisdom is one of the two arms of Buddhist practice. We have wisdom and we have compassion. Wisdom is a knowing, an understanding. It's not about knowledge or facts or ideas or concepts or information. It's about a broader understanding, closer to right view, which Lee will be talking about on Saturday. Prajnaparamita, the mother of all Buddhas. Prajna meaning wisdom. Paramita, the the perfection. It's a perfect understanding. And perfect understanding is present in all the other paramitas. Ultimately, it's about understanding our true nature, our Buddha nature, or our Christ nature. It's seeing clearly. Wisdom is seeing clearly things as they are. And then fifth is energy. Energy supports wisdom. Energy is about effort. It's about persistence. It's about um, staying with our practice. It's about diligence. It can be about striving. But ultimately, it's about a balance so that we have enough energy to stay with the practice, to do the practice, to be mindful, but not so much that there's this striving or contraction or um, pressure. And that's, uh, Gil talks about how important that is for each of us to work with energy and find that balance. And that balance might be different at different times. Sometimes we need to bring more energy. Sometimes we may be, uh, we may have too much energy and we need to relax. We need to back off a little bit. Um, there may be times for a lot of energy, times when that's very appropriate, and other times when a more relaxed approach is more appropriate. So that's the balance that we all need to work with and find for ourselves. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about it in terms of not watering the seeds of unhealthy or negative um, deeds or thoughts within us, not, not promoting or encouraging those negative seeds. And at the same time, recognizing and watering the healthy seeds within us. And to do that takes diligence, takes energy, takes um, enough presence to recognize, to know what the healthy seeds are and what the unhealthy seeds are. 
so that we do not water the unhealthy and we do water the healthy. The sixth parami is that of patience. Patience meaning forbearance, acceptance, endurance. When we have patience, we have no enemies. We have no enemies because there's no opposition. There's no resistance. Again, it seems to me that patience is something that is really called for at this time in our world situation. Acceptance. Not acceptance that means we don't care or we don't do anything, but accept that deep acceptance of things as they are. An understanding that we don't have the bigger picture. We have a limited view, each of us, and not the big picture. An understanding that for a bodhisattva, for each of us, we must endure the suffering that other people create even as we work to relieve that suffering or to help in whatever way we can. So it's a radical acceptance of things as they are, but not inaction or inertness. Thich Nhat Hanh calls it inclusiveness. And he talks about having a heart so large that it, that it embraces everything. A heart as big as the ocean, he says. That it's large enough to hold the suffering. And he says this involves deep looking and understanding so that we have love and acceptance. I never had thought too much about patience before. And now I'm coming to see that how important, how valuable it really is that patience with myself, with each other, as, as we see the suffering in the world, as we see the roots of the suffering, as we see other people creating suffering, the patience to bear that, to be with that, not to make them wrong, not to blame, or, or, you know, get hostile. That doesn't mean not to speak out or not to point it out, but to be patient. I remember one time being with a teacher, Gangaji, and somebody asking the question, um, I think it was about relationships, but how do you, how do you work with relationships that are so challenging? or when people um, do not see things as you do and are creating suffering? And the answer was with a good deal of patience, patience and understanding. Accepting people where they are as they are, and that's patience. Then number seven is truthfulness. 
honesty, excellent, excellence, another foundational practice. Truthfulness means not being deluded, seeing things clearly. It involves honest speech. And it means to, to know truthfulness means to live truthfulness. So we live truth every step of the way. It's important that we're true to ourselves. Being honest with ourselves and being true to ourselves. And then there's the ultimate truth. So there's truth every step of the way. There's truth in every action, interaction, every day. But then there's the ultimate truth, the deathless and the unconditioned. Our Buddha nature. And it's opening to that larger truth as well. We must be true in whatever we do, in everything that we do. And then the eighth is determination. Determination supports truthfulness as each one supports the previous perfection. Determination seems to me to be like energy, but a little different in that that it doesn't have the same (laughs) energy. Determination is an intention. It is a one-pointedness. It is setting our minds on something and then not wavering. It's not saying, oh, I think I'll, I think I'll go to the one-day sitting on Saturday. And then Saturday turns out to be a beautiful day, and we say, oh, I think I'll go to the beach instead. It's rather saying, I want freedom. I want to be awake. Therefore, I have determined I'm going to the sitting on Saturday. It's a beautiful day. I'd really like to go to the beach, but I'm going to go to the sitting. It's that kind of one-pointedness where we're not drawn away. That doesn't mean we might make a different decision at some time. But it's that uh, stick-to-itiveness, that um, sense of I'm committed to this, this is what I'm going to do. Not in a harsh way, not in a contracting way, but with that sense of one-pointedness. This is what I'm going to do. Um, it's said, you know, when, when we make a decision or when we decide to do something, the whole universe seems to respond. And it's, it's that kind of determination, that kind of decision that the whole world gets behind. I've had the experience, I can be quite determined, that's a strong characteristic I have. And I've had the experience of of, um, probably more than one person experiencing that as anger. And that's not, I I was very surprised when one person told me, you know, you were so angry. No, I wasn't angry, but I was determined. And it was that, you know, that determination, that set, I was going to do what I had decided to do that to this person appeared to be anger. Now, I don't know if that was her perception, if it was something I was doing, probably a little bit of each. But it's not, it's not harsh. 
It is just setting one's mind to do something and then following through. Following through, I guess, is the the big part of determination. Then the ninth parami, the ninth perfection, is loving kindness. One of the four Brahma Viharas. Probably the closest we come in Buddhist practice to love. Loving kindness includes, I think, compassion and sympathetic joy to other of the Brahma Viharas. Compassion being that that we feel for other people, the heart opening to the suffering of other people. Loving kindness is a caring about all beings. It's, again, that open-heartedness, that wishing well for everyone, no matter who, whether we like them or whether we don't, whether we're close to them or whether we're not, and at the same time, ourselves bringing that compassion, that loving kindness, that caring to ourselves as well. It's about the welfare of all beings. And it's about removing resentment, not allowing resentment to hang around. It's about wanting for everyone the same that we want for ourselves. There was a song that John Denver used to sing that, um, that I used to love. And he says in it, um, there's nothing I want that I don't want for everyone. And that, I think that's the spirit of loving kindness. That I want for you the same as I want for myself. When we want or when we watch after, take care of other people, we're actually watching over, taking care of ourselves, and vice versa. When we take care of ourselves, when we watch over ourselves, we are at the same time watching over, taking care of others as well. So it's very interactive. And the last, the tenth perfection, paramita, is that of equanimity, the fourth Brahma-vihara. Equanimity is a sublime state because, again, there's no resistance. There's no um, opposition. Equanimity is meeting all things with equality, meeting all things with the same love and compassion. That, of course, doesn't mean that we don't discern or that we don't use wisdom Discerning is, of course, a part of wisdom. But that we bring that equality. We bring that sense of of level-mindedness to all things. That means that no matter what we meet, whether it's wonderful or whether it's terrible, that we meet it with the same... Compassion. We meet it with the same understanding. We may do very different things in each case, but we bring to it the same level, the same balance. The important thing to remember about equanimity is that it is not about not caring 
or about indifference. Very often people mistake it for indifference. Or somebody said last night, um, oh, I just lost it. What did it say? It was something like blank or, hmm, I can't think of it, but it's not that. It is not uh, flat, that was the word. That equanimity is about being flat. And I said, no, (laughs) it is not flat at all. It is not unfeeling. It is not uncaring. It is not indifferent. It is just an acceptance of all things as they are and meeting things with the same open-heartedness, the same love and compassion, no matter what, what it is. And it's about not seeing ourselves as separate from others. We understand the interconnectedness. We understand that we are all part of the same web of life. And that brings this greater acceptance and equanimity. So I'd like to suggest um, that you read the um, section in Gill's book, The Issue at Hand, on patience. I meant to mention that when I was talking about patience. Um, Very nice, very nice chapter. And I would also like to recommend that over this next week, you pick one of the perfections, one of the paramitas, and just study it. Just notice it. Practice it if you can. Um, notice, Notice it in other people, perhaps. Notice it in yourself. Say if you pick generosity, the first one, the supposedly the easiest one. Notice the opportunities for being generous. Notice your willingness to be generous or your unwillingness to be. Notice what the feeling is when you are generous. Notice what the feeling is when you're not, when you decide not to do something that's generous. Notice how other people respond to your generosity. Notice generosity when you see it out in the world. And by the same token, notice the lack of generosity when you see that also. And just study it. Let me... Let me see if I can say each one. Um, I may have to look. Generosity, virtue, or ethics, or sila. Um, Renunciation. Already forgetting. Wisdom. Energy. Patience. Truthfulness. Determination. Loving-kindness and equanimity. And see what you can learn about any one of those. They're all important. They're all wonderful. But pick one and concentrate on it this week and and see what happens. So I think we have about two minutes. (laughs) Does anybody have a comment or question? We can actually take a little more time if you want. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the watering the seeds. 
can't even remember which army that was. Watering wholesome seeds more seems like a very natural activity, but avoiding sort of like there's several things. It's like saying don't think about hippopotami, <laughs> and it sort of tends to make me go toward either aversion or judgment. So the, mm-hmm. the, the not watering is a little problematic. Actually, I think what it means is being aware, being very aware of those unwholesome seeds and thereby not promoting them, not getting caught, not perpetuating them. And then, yes, we do have to work with the aversion, with the judgment that comes up, noticing that too. And to the best of our ability, letting go of it. Sometimes we can't let go. You know, it's there. Um, then just mindfulness, just noting that it's there and doing our best not to promote it, not to get caught up in it. Um, It's a vigilance, I think. I think vigilance is a good word for that. So we're, we're really aware, we're really paying attention every time that unwholesome seed wants to sprout, wants to show itself. No, 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 I'm not going that way. Does that speak to it? Yeah. Um, Something came up recently that uh, where I had a chance to notice um, unwholesome influences on myself. Uh, Like I was listening to some news programs on the radio and I thought, this is awful, terrible. I'm going to turn that thing off. I turned it off. Mm -hmm. Felt better for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you don't have a choice, of course. Those things are going to be there in front of you. But sometimes you can turn it off. That's right. That's right. And I would say there's two parts to that. One is the recognition. The recognition, this is not good for me. This is not supporting me right now. Whatever it is. And then to the action, being willing to turn it off. Because sometimes we recognize it. We say, oh, this is not good. And we do it anyway. (laughs) So the action following it, I think, is very important. The willingness to turn it off. The deliberate taking action. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I discovered a few years ago that after doing this practice for many years, um, and I, I've never been a big movie goer, so I, you know, I just didn't go very often. And then I took my granddaughter to um, a movie, a, a huge complex, you know. And I was so totally overwhelmed. It was, it was just incredible. It really surprised me. But, you know, first of all, the huge big complex driving up and there's this huge parking lot and all these cars and people coming and going. And then, you know, the long line to get the ticket and then going in. And then as we go in, you're bombarded with with all these games and loudness and colors and the smell of popcorn and whatever else food there was. I mean, it was like an, an assault on all my senses. And then go into the theater, and I can't remember offhand what movie it was. It wasn't one I think I was particularly interested in. 
but then just all the action on the screen, you know, it was just boom, boom, boom. And <laughs> we came out and I was just totally exhausted. It's the only time that I didn't walk her up to the door. <laughs> you know, I just dropped her off and <laughs> I think I did make sure she got to the door, but I couldn't wait to get home. <laughs> I was so totally overstimulated. So when I read Thich Nhat Hanh talking about, you know, being careful about the movies we go to and the books that we read, I always think of that. It was just such a graphic example. And, and then what I thought of is people that haven't been doing this practice or that aren't aware, young people, you know, go to that all the time. And they're so desensitized. You know, it doesn't bother them, obviously. They're hardly aware that it's there. But I couldn't help but think, if that affected me so, then it's got to have an effect on people, even if they don't realize it. All that bombardment, that overstimulation has got to have an effect. So um, I think it serves us to heed his advice, to pay attention to what it is we're bringing in, we're putting in our minds and our bodies. numbness will kick in mm-hmm. that's right for our protection mm-hmm. <laughs> it will but then that doesn't necessarily stop some of the yeah, deeper level damage occasions where you just seem not be numb mm-hmm. that's right right. that's right even more dangerous mm-hmm. anything else Okay, let's sit for the last 10 minutes then.
May the merit that we have gathered this evening in our practice together be shared with and for the benefit of all beings everywhere. May all beings live in peace and harmony, free from suffering. journey home.